Welcome to Nutritank's podcast. When you tune in, you're going to listen to a fantastic array of speakers speaking about things in the following fields such as food, farming, nutrition, lifestyle medicine and other areas of health. We can't wait to have you with us on this journey. Millennials, coddled, entitled, narcissistic, work shy and bloody lazy. We want to redeem millennials and give ourselves a good reputation. We have poured endless passions and hard work into Nutritank and this podcast. We hope you learn and enjoy. Welcome, Professor Tim Spector. What an honour it is to have you on today's episode of Nutritank's Nourish Your Mind podcast. I've been following your work since I was right at the start of the medical school and I'm right at the end now, about to graduate. I think we met first probably when I was in my second year through a College of Medicine event or something or other, but like I say, myself, my team, we're all huge fans of your work and can't wait to find out more on this podcast today. So let's start at the very beginning. Your career path has been very varied. It's taken a lot of twists and turns. So um, as I've said in your bio, you qualified at St. Bart's Hospital and began your career as a rheumatologist. So if you can take the audience back to the good old days, say hello first and tell us why you decided to specialize in rheumatology from the onset. Hello everyone. Yes, yeah, so I'm happy to be here to tell you about the very complex uh, route that I took to get where I am today. Um, but hopefully uh, some people will identify with that. So I'll actually go back to actually when I was a medical student, when um, I was a very lazy medical student, and uh, I only really woke up in the last sort of 18 months because I didn't want to get a house job uh, in, a dreadful, in a dreadful hospital. Um, and that was my main stimulus. But um, about in, in the last year, I did um, uh, just start to um, think about the fact that I liked doing research. And I, I did epidemiology module. It was called Community Medicine then. And I had a great teacher, and, and we were allowed to do our own projects. And that's where I did my own first project and wrote my own first paper as a medical student which was all about um, actually drinking coffee and cancer of the pancreas. And I got a letter in the Lancet, and it really you know, made me feel really good about it. And so I said, I really like doing this. And I spent several weeks in the library and getting world figures on coffee drinking and soy drinking and things. Uh, and uh, that really seeded that, that idea that I, I had a potential as a researcher because I just enjoyed it. Generally, you do things you enjoy. Um, then, um, but it wasn't obvious that I wanted to do sort of standard public health medicine because at the time that was very um, surveillance operated. It wasn't very research orientated, and uh, so I, I said, uh, "I want. I'll do general medicine. That will give me most opportunities." So um, I did my SHO training. I went for a year to Brussels uh, to, to make it more interesting. And uh, in membership, and then as soon as I got membership, I said, um, I'm still interested in this research thing. I don't want to really be a registrar. I will uh, do a master's in epidemiology just to keep my options open uh, because I really enjoyed that. 
and uh, that's what I did at the London School of Hygiene for a year. I went back to being a student, which was great fun. Uh, and then after that, I got a research fellowship with a welcome to do my thesis uh, at the London Hospital in Whitechapel. And that was, and I decided really at that time to pick a specialty. And I picked one that uh, my boss at the time said is the easiest specialty to do. Um, you can be an expert in six weeks. All you got to do is uh, have a, a smooth style and uh, listen to patients and be nice to them. And it's all about pattern recognition. Uh, and there's not too many nights. So that was the uh, that was the reason for I do it. But also there was wasn't much research going on into the epidemiology of the these rheumatic diseases. It wasn't as sexy and as exciting as all cardiology and cancer where a lot of my other colleagues were fighting each other mm -hmm. uh, over, over, the, over these um, risk factor studies so that's that's what I did but um, so it was very research based and then I managed to get a, um, uh, a senior registrar job and then a consultant uh, job on the basis of that because there weren't many research posts and I got a consultant job at St Thomas's Hospital um, a long long time ago but by that time, I'd already started some research, and I'd started something called the um, Chingford study, which was a study of a thousand women. We followed up every year, looking at bone conditions and osteoporosis, and looking at their diets and um, very general other uh, lifestyle things. And that, you know, I, I was leading my own group at that time, so I moved to St Thomas's, and that's where I set up the twin research unit, and decided that. Um, after a three-month break and a sort of split from my previous mentor and supervisor, uh, who was a, an epidemiological rheumatologist who went to Manchester, said, oh, let's do something completely new. And I took a few months off to reflect, went around the country, and eventually was in a, a pub with a, a geneticist at Oxford who said, Tim, you should really think about doing twin studies. And so... Uh, not knowing much about twin studies, but I thought that sounded a good idea. No one else was doing it, so I was trying to find a niche, and so that's where I uh, went back, got a grant, and really the rest is history, and uh, set that up um, in uh, about 1993. So that's, uh, and then from that point on, I then continued working about half time as a, as a consultant in the NHS, but my sort of love was for the research and gradually got more and more, I got more of a team, bigger grants, and I eventually transitioned from the um, hospital to the university and got a professorship. Um, and yeah, and, and since then, I've really just slowly transitioned every five years into another area, using the twins as the basic tool for everything I do, mm. uh, but realizing that I actually needed a new challenge every five years. And, um, you know, I could have still be talking on the rheumatology circuit about osteophytes of the knee, um, as some of my colleagues still do, but I would be very bored about that by now. Um, and so I realized that I, I, you know, I like to learn new things, start from scratch. Mm -hmm. And so I, I did that. I moved from epidemiology into genetics and genetic epidemiology basically self-taught myself that. Um, and then uh, about 10 years ago, um, I, when I started writing my 
my book on epigenetics, which was called Identically Different, which was looking at why twins, identical twins, are much more different than we think, um, started then to think about diet as one of the reasons they might be different and their microbes might be different. And that really was the start of the sort of current journey, um, mm -hmm. getting into nutrition in a big way, realizing that that was important. But for me, the, the sort of big pull about nutrition was the fact that gut microbes were um, behind it all. And suddenly, uh, again, going away for a period of, of four months and writing a book, basically looking at all the research there was on the microbiome about uh, you know, eight to ten years ago and coming up with these, these ideas that you could link up a lot of our problems in nutrition mm. by understanding this new organ, uh, the gut microbe. So, and it was such a new field, there was basically no one around, no competition really yeah. uh, in, the, in the UK. And that, Got the monopoly on everyone. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, that suits my personality really. Um, uh, you know, sometimes it doesn't work out. Um, epigenetics didn't work out the way I wanted it, but it was still very exciting. Um, you know, being on the cutting edge of that at the beginning. Um, but the microbiome has kept going. Uh, it's not proved to be a fad that's gone away. And really that's, um, I just loved learning about it, going away for a few months. Um, uh, and like writing a thesis every time, but starting from scratch, uh, you know, treating yourself like a beginner, you're not biased by all the baggage that comes, mm. and that's particularly true in nutrition, where there have been a lot of people who are in camps and label you, and I've always tried to avoid being labeled uh, too much, uh, and and so I feel I can write uh, fairly impartially, uh, where no one's completely impartial, uh, on the on these matters, and as time has gone on, it's obvious that nutrition is, you know, the most important of the medical sciences and the most under-recognized and underfunded. Completely. Uh, but now in my position uh, of people actually listening to me for the first time, um, I can say things uh, that I couldn't have done 10 years ago, you know, without getting sacked. Mm. And feel I can sort of make a difference so um, but uh, you know we've also been helped by some of the technology um, that's gone into it to make it even more exciting and and that's culminating in some of the, the papers we've written recently absolutely and we're going to delve deeper into them as we go along in today's episode but I just wanted to start off by saying wow what a truly brilliant winding and varied just serendipitous journey and it's funny you say that you were approached by that guy in the pub to um start getting into twin studies i think all good ideas start in the pub and so just delving deeper into the twin studies and trying to get our audience to understand how that was kind of maybe the thing that uh, brought you onto the nutrition pathway with looking at twins and realizing how different their microbes were within their guts. Um, I actually recently had the McFarlane twins on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, who are the founders of The Gut Stuff, who um, told our audience about what it was like to be participants on uh, the twin research study. So hearing it from the other end, I was wondering if you could tell our audience some of the most memorable experiences you've had um, with doing the twin study and any remarkable learning points that you've come across. 
Well, there'll be so many, you know, over the decades I've done it, uh, and you've got to put things in the context of the time I was doing them. Yes. So when we started, basically nobody thought, uh, so in the early, early 1990s, the idea that all diseases were, you know, uh, 50% genetic was totally foreign. There was this idea that all age-related diseases were just wear and tear, and that only exciting, sexy diseases that uh, kill people really were uh, uh, had genes in them. And so people were working on rare diseases. They were, you know, on cancer, um, and none of the common diseases were given any attention at all. And so, you know, I like a challenge, and so the idea was to sort of bust some of those myths mm. um, and you know along the way as you know as well as showing that back pain was three times more genetic than breast cancer um, you know we also diversified and looked at uh, how uh, religious belief was genetic and um, a lot of the way we think is genetic so that really there was hardly anything that didn't have some genetic component so that kept me excited by this idea that I was trying to break dogma and uh, change people's minds. Um, and then it then it started dawning on me that the identical twins were a really brilliant model to show into the lay public. Um, you know, everyone can see what an identical pair of twins look like, and to show any differences between them, it's pretty obvious that it must be due to something that's, you know, uh, in the environment or what they're eating. And so that became a really good model to start talking about um, why so many identical twins die at different ages, um, why they don't get the same cancers, why they don't get the same diseases. And it was either epigenetics or it was uh, the microbiome. And we t it turned out that epigenetics wasn't that big a factor. And so that really turned me towards saying, well, it's got to be the fact that uh, these people share 100% of their genes. They're only sharing you know, a third of their gut microbes, that's got to be the, the number one factor that explains why mm -hmm. uh, they're so different. And that really sort of drove me to say, well, okay, this is, this is, you know, something we have to understand. So because we can manipulate it, unlike genes. And that really, for me, was the sort of turning point. And I started looking at all these identical twin models uh, in, in a different way. But um, twins have been great because everyone can understand a twin study more or less mm -hmm. uh, they're great tv and as you see with the mac twins the you know, they love volunteering and mm -hmm. you know we've had these fantastic people around the around the country uh who've been totally altruistic loving to volunteer and they tend to get into the papers and the daily mail you know mm -hmm. whenever you want you can get a photo of uh a, a nice pair of identical twins um so you know, I think it illustrated the effect of diet, and we had these. Um, we picked this group of, of twins, like where one was fatter than the other one, and one, you know, and they they were the same until the age of eighteen, and then they diversified, mm -hmm. and you could explain a lot of that because their microbes had, had changed, and they were just then processing. It turned out they were sort of processing food differently, so they seemed to have different metabolisms. It wasn't just that one was eating twice as much as the other one. Mm -hmm. And that to me was a sort of bit of an aha moment to say, okay, well, we can, we can do this. And 
gradually the technology has been catching up um, and sort of culminated in some of these very detailed studies of twins we've done, like, like in the PREDICT study, where we actually, you know, took 600 of them and that, it gave them really intensive um, identical meal treatments. And we're going to go into um, the PREDICT study in a bit and diving into the details of the gut microbiome. But before that, it seems uh, from your journey that you're a self-teacher. You've taught yourself, as you said, genetic um, epidemiology. Don't know how you did it, but hey, you're a professor. And it seems that you've really taught yourself nutrition. And this wasn't something that was actually taught to you as a medical doctor. So could you just take us back to your medical school days and um, your postgraduate training and tell our audience, were you taught anything at all uh, to do with nutrition? Um, I was definitely taught about scurvy um, and uh, vitamin deficiencies, which I think every medical student in in the world is still taught about, though I don't know how many people have ever seen a case of scurvy. The only other case of scurvy I saw was in another medical student. Um, who was in the pub too much. <laughs> uh, just eating cheese, uh, cheese sandwiches. But the, um, uh, I, so I don't really remember any decent nutrition. I think uh, we, although Bath, I think had the first ever professor of obesity. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and I think we might have had one lecture from him, uh, but. You know, it was one or two hours at most, and uh, it certainly never came back into our focus. Um, but I, I did work for a year in Belgium, and they did have uh, in the nineteen eighties the uh, first time I ever saw it uh, a metabolic ward for obese patients. Mm. So they were much ahead of the UK in that time, and they had they were doing different diets and, and, and actually doing some research on them. But that was. Um, very unheard of because there were, wasn't a lot of obesity around then. Mm-hmm. But um, uh, yeah, so it was appalling, really, what I was taught. And but it makes me really angry that it's still mm-hmm. uh, an international disgrace. There is so so little teaching. So I had to self uh, teach. I don't mind doing this. As I said, I've done it several times. Um, I've got a thick skin because when you go into a new specialty, mm-hmm. uh, other colleagues resent it because they say that's not fair I've done a degree and a PhD and a, you know, I've been doing this for 10 years this guy gets on and writes something in the Daily Mail and you know what does he know he's you know he knows nothing about it so I've had that throughout my career generally mm-hmm. but I, I'm pretty sort of immune to it now um, and I realize I don't have the fine detail of many of my colleagues but I I often have a much better overview of the whole mm-hmm. subject. Sure, generalist. Mm-hmm. Um, and generally, I've gone away for several months, and or I sit in the back of lectures. You know, go to conferences that I don't know anything about, and learn the jargon, uh, and just picked it up. And uh, I, I tend to that's that's how I thrive. But many people find that quite daunting. Absolutely. So it's like learning a new language, and I, I like. You know, I speak several languages, and it's the similar thing of not worrying about sounding like an idiot when you first uh, say mm. the word, or you you get uh, you know the name of some hormone wrong, or or some gene wrong, or uh, you know you make a faux pas about um, 
the source of vitamin D or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing is not to worry about it. Um, it you know, it, it's just important to for, for everybody, I think, to expand uh, their knowledge because medicine now is all about putting people into small boxes, mm. micro specialties, and if you're not careful, you really fight hard to, to move across across disciplinary and it. You know, increasingly, all the big discoveries are being made by people crossing between different specialties. Absolutely. Yeah. And you can see that with COVID now, you know, I mean, um, we made big mistakes because we treated it like flu and just had respiratory physicians and they missed all the signs of skin disease and uh, anosmia and all these other things because mm. they, they didn't have a sort of multidisciplinary approach to the whole thing. Mm, absolutely no i absolutely agree it's about uh breaking that glass ceiling and not kind of learning things in a siloed off manner but learning about it through its interconnectivity and in a very holistic way and that is kind of the issue with modern medicine that like you say there's so many subspecialties and that kind of limits the patient as well as the clinician's education because you're always in a box and you're not thinking about the other disciplines out there and how it could factor into the patients that in front of you so I absolutely agree with that and um, like you say you are one of those people that doesn't mind self-teaching and you have the discipline and the initiative to go out there and acquire the knowledge however for many other clinicians and allied healthcare professionals who are interested in nutrition education it's not the case and they don't have the time and it hasn't actually been integrated into their training from the onset so it's kind of a systemic issue that lack of nutrition and lifestyle education within medical training so i wanted to get your opinion on what you think about nutritank's work and our mission to promote greater nutrition and lifestyle medicine education within um uk medical schools nationwide um i think you know uh, you've met me a few times over the years that we're very passionate about it and we've got around 25 medical schools now with nutritank branches who are beginning to have a relationship with their own uh, medical faculty to open the lines of communication to really start getting changes to curriculum made. So um, having heard your story and your disdain to the lack of nutrition education in um, the UK and other countries in Europe, compared to other countries in Europe, um, I wanted to hear your thoughts about this change uh, for future generations. Well, it's probably the most vital uh, thing we can do. I mean, I was at a the BMJ Nutrition Conference, and I was asked what my you know big idea would be, and I, I I said it's making nutrition compulsory education not just from uh, medical students and doctors, but uh, for everybody. Okay. You know that uh, you start at school and you get an interest in it, rather than it being seen as some uh, purely academic subject that you only only pick up when you're you're eighteen and you're mm-hmm. in some subspecialty. Uh, and you just have to rote learn it like with all the other uh, bits you learn. But we're coming into it much too late. We're not thinking about it, you know, how important it is. And when you think of all the rubbish people do learn at school, uh, you know, what's more important, learning, you know, in depth, you know, every every Tudor king, or is it uh, actually understanding what we eat every day and where it comes from and what it does to our bodies? So uh, I think, you know, it's absolutely vital what you're doing, but uh, uh, but I think it could even be brought, you know, 
part of a broader movement that is mm. actually uh, goes to grassroots because you know hopefully you know the COVID thing is the wake up that uh, nutrition and obesity are you know the cause of most of our problems and that even the prime minister has said that you know he's going to do something about it because it nearly killed him uh, and a lot of that is due to the poor food that this country is eating mm-hmm. and i think we have to tackle that in as many ways as possible um the nutritank stuff is, is great um but i've also tried to change the curriculum in my medical school and it's not easy mm-hmm. uh, even for position, someone in my position to do that, um, because the people who are looking at the education of you know of the students are under huge pressures to deliver things that the students like, and they give them good scores on, and so they come back, and they you know uh, the ratings are important, mm-hmm. but also generally they lack any any anyone in the in the in medical schools to support it. There isn't the powerful professor generally mm-hmm. uh, supporting it. And it's generally the nutrition departments are generally not the ones teaching uh, in the medical schools. So there isn't the medical specialty that would push it like they do in all the other ones. So, you know, I've, I've seen Nutritank make some victories, uh, but it gets eroded away <laughs> uh, in subsequent years um, because there aren't those permanent people there so you know it, it, it needs to be it's actually vital that medical students do mm. understand when you're doing great work but you know it needs to be something that the royal colleges embrace and the you know and we start to get uh, role models um that you know it, it becomes a medical specialty because at the moment it's seen still as a, a minor specialty Absolutely. And a few things in response to um, your insights just there. Um, So we totally agree. It definitely should be ingrained into school children from the onset. It's unbelievably important and a huge shame that food sciences and food tech has been eradicated from most schools curriculum compared to um, the 20th century. So we actually started a couple years ago and it's now gaining traction quite a lot more, an initiative called Nutrition for Youngsters, um, that five or six of our Nutritank branches out of the uh, 25 have taken on, where medical students who luckily are all DBS security checked, so there's no issues there, they go into their local primary schools, they make a network within uh, primary schools around that area of the medical school, and they go into primary schools to teach kids around um, um, type 2 diabetes prevention and, and healthy eating promotion. And it's all, you know, very regulated, basic stuff. The curriculum we've got has been made by public health nutritionists and dietitians, and it's, you know, it's basic level uh, nutrition for medical students to actually take on board, but also it gets ingrained into their mind even more because they're teaching it to the children and the children love it. They do it in a very fun, interactive way, like getting kids to 
dish out the sugar um, in grams, like how much is in a bottle of Coke and really making it tangible because I think that's what also is an issue sometimes with nutrition. Some of these things like atherosclerotic arteries and whatever, it's it's all within, so it's quite intangible to see the effects unless you know, you're looking at someone with a high BMI, but often some people, like as you know, are um, slim or just slightly overweight but still have very poor diets and, and don't know the damage that's being done internally. So um, we've been doing that initiative for a while and um, also I agree with you, it is a very um, much an upwards battle with kind of getting faculty on board and I completely understand the struggles you've had at King's but what we're trying to do is actually get a faculty champion in each medical school um, who is the nutrition lead and um, there are quite a few that already have this at different medical schools. So, for instance, Southampton have it, Bristol have it, UCL have it. And um, it's all about what we're trying to do is get a faculty champion within the curriculum to work with a student champion within the Nutrient branch to really get the conversation going. And then we work with Cunry Medicine UK, who are essentially a non-profit organisation who um, educates medical students and doctors around the application of nutrition education through cooking and the theory. And what we're trying to do is, is they offer free consultation. So then they, we bring the culinary medicine lot in to the faculty and they advise them on how to do it in a very convenient way for how their curriculum structured because obviously every medical school is different. And then we give case studies to them as well because Bristol have started to do it by having a culinary medicine module at the university and UCL is a great case study. They have got culinary medicine in for the entire cohort of year fives um, within their primary care block. So it really is about just low hanging fruit and finding the most appropriate places where you can place nutrition uh, within the curriculum and kind of just not taking no for an answer. But I agree with you, it's still, you know, a long journey left with it. Yeah, and I think one, you know, one approach is often, um, you know, medical schools don't like adverse publicity. So, you know, what you could think about yeah. is having a, a, a league table. Um, Very uh, good point. <laughs> but, uh, but also for the junior mm. doctors, you know, um, I was quite shocked when I you know, talked to some doctors in training in diabetes and you know they don't get really any teaching about nutrition either and you think well that's that's pretty shocking um uh, so i think they're really good examples of how um, the system is failing but um yeah no but uh, i think you know there is a growing movement and i think mm. it may happen from the public as well you know educating their doctors and giving <laughs> exactly them. I've had many, you know, many people buying my books who buy them for their GPs, you know, and they, they give them to their GPs, and mm. as well as GPs giving to their patients. So it's, it's a sort of... Um, it's a uh, shared partnership in its finest form. It must annoy a lot of doctors when they get to, you know, get something, but uh, it depends who's giving it. <laughs> Absolutely. So now moving on to the nitty gritties of the gut microbiome, you really are the father and the legend of this area. And so I just wanted you to tell our audience a little bit about the background and the development of the gut microbiome, 
when were discoveries around it first made and how is it termed as an organ? Is it the same definition that we apply to our lungs, to our kidneys, to our skin? How does that all work in terms of its of the basic biological terms? Right, well, the, I mean, the discovery of the microbiome really, um, I think, was around the end of the 1990s. Mm -hmm. um, and the real father figure of, of, the, of the modern era is, is a guy uh, called Jeff Gordon, uh, who's in St. Louis. And he's part of most of the professors of the microbiome in, in uh, the US who've been through his lab. Sure. Um, and uh, he was really the first to discover that there were these microbes around um, that were beneficial, that um, when you took them away, you got worse, and when you were there, that was the first realisation that microbes weren't all bad. Mm. Well, before that time, I think we, we, we thought, okay, maybe yoghurt might be good, but there were, you know, basically the stuff in our guts was generally bad, and we just had to get rid of it. Um, and so that was, I think, the change. But it took a long time for the technology and genetic sequencing to, to kick in, really, until um, uh, about 10 years ago. That, um, so it, it, it took about uh, you know, another 12 years from that point until uh, there was sufficiently good genetics to start doing these studies in mice, uh, showing how important the gut microbiome was, that if you lost your community, uh, you really didn't develop properly, didn't have a proper immune system, you couldn't uh, digest your food, you had to have 30% more food, if you didn't have microbes in there, all this kind of stuff started coming out. And then they, they made the, uh, in, in around 2010, the first sort of signs that obesity was related to it, mm -hmm. and you could make mice fat or thin by changing their microbes. So um, I think that's that's really when the sort of two stages really so i think it was about but it's really only 10 years old i would say mm -hmm. the whole mm -hmm. so when i went into it i i i, heard, I went to a few meetings again you know i went to a genetics meeting and i heard a guy called marty blazer talking about helicobacter pylori um which was a bug that everyone wanted to get rid of because it caused um uh, ulcers and uh, when they did get rid of it, they found that it gave you cancers and other problems uh, further on. And that was, again, another realisation that things were happening. And that was about uh, 12 years ago. And I said, I, I want to, want to do a, a twin study on the microbiome. And I you know, always wanted to do the first twin study on anything. That was my sort of ambition. It took me a couple of years to get that going. And that's how I worked with the team in Cornell uh, to do that. Um, but the, the microbiome, um, has evolved in my thinking in, into a virtual organ. So it's not, I don't think it's any official classification, but it's the way of thinking of it rather than as a group of um, a thousand species of microbes that have, you know, tens of thousands of strains and produce um, 50,000 different metabolites. It's the best way is to think of it as, as a virtual organ, the same way you might think of your liver. Mm -hmm. Because it's a whole, the liver, you know, is a number of cells that can do different things because they've got different enzymes. This is uh, a whole integrated community, like something living in a jungle or in your in a garden, 
and you see it as a whole rather than as a, each microbe special individually. And I think that's the way to deal with it. And realize once you do that, it, it makes it a lot easier to conceptualize what all these bugs do. And you, you can't just treat one bug on its own. You've got to look at how it affects the whole community because they all interact so much. Mm-hmm. So that, that, that brings in this whole idea of gut health mm-hmm. because you have a healthy uh, organ and to have a healthy organ it has to be diverse. You need lots of different species and you can tolerate a few bad guys as long as you've got enough good guys in there. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the way I like to think of it. But basically, it's the job of the gut microbiome really is, to, is a chemical factory. It's producing metabolites. And if you think of it that way, then it, it makes this interaction with food, which is also basically 26,000 individual chemicals, uh, interacts with all the chemicals, uh, the microbes who produce other chemicals, and then they go and stimulate our genes and interact with them and all the uh, immune system in our body. So mm-hmm. it's this huge complex network that we're unraveling. And, and, if, and obviously we can't uh, nowadays think about single pathways because it's so complex. So we have to have these rather vivid generalizations and allow computers to do what our brains can't. Sure. And um, yeah, the jungle analogy is great. And I remember when you spoke at Dr. Hazel Wallace's food conference, I love the analogy you used around your gut being your garden and then the foods in prebiotic and probiotic forms are like the fertilizers that we choose to allow our garden to thrive. Could you just elaborate a little bit more on this and talk about what the fertilizers would be in everyday life? Yes, if you, if you treat your, your, if your gut is your garden in that analogy, um, you want as many species to grow and you want to grow very well and produce lots of seeds and flower and you know uh, uh, keep all the other animals happy in the in the area and to do that uh, you have your fertilizers which would be your prebiotics so these would be anything that uh, increases the good bacteria uh, the good gut health over the bad and in general they are things that contain fiber that the microbes can generally eat, digest, and then produce good chemicals like um, the butyrates and other things that uh, uh, we know are good for the immune system. Um, so you've got all these prebiotic fibers that need to re- need to be quite dense to, to reach the gut. So that excludes carbohydrates that get di- digested too easily and just includes the and most of the starchy ones that um, uh, we shouldn't be eating too many of. Then you've got other things that are prebiotics, which I think might now include uh, things like polyphenols. So polyphenols are this whole new area, which is, you know, it's a whole podcast on its own, but basically they used to be called antioxidants and they're like rocket fuel for your microbes. And they're in all dark colored berries, they're in nuts and seeds, they're in olive oil, they're in dark chocolate, coffee, green tea, red wine, all these kind of things in there. Um, they're really important to have as a, as a fertilizer. And then on the other hand, you've got probiotics, which are actually are live microbes, which everyone knows about in yogurt, but also in cheese, and more recently in these 
relatively new products to the UK like kefir, kombucha, uh, kimchi, sauerkraut, etc. And uh, by they, you need to eat those regularly, uh, and they will stimulate your your gut health in other ways. And uh, are a nice balance to the idea that saturated fat is bad because all the studies now showing that these forms of dairy are generally coming up on the positive side in epidemiology. So that's that's the input side, and of course you want to make sure you don't uh, treat your garden with toxins like antibiotics, um, you know, the equivalent of pesticides. Um, you don't want too much glyphosate, um, herbicides, you know, it could be bad for you, artificial sweeteners, uh, a lot of the chemicals and, and other stuff in ultra-processed foods look like they're nearly all bad in some way for your gut microbiome. Uh, and so it's all back to eating real foods rather than uh, too many processed ones, even if they are low in calories, low in fat, mm. or show something uh, on the label. Absolutely. And that is very interesting, you know, the whole idea of what's on the label. And you, you see so much in the supermarket now with gut-friendly um, used as the kind of implicit health promotion. So we're not allowed to say it's a probiotic per se. What are your thoughts on how all this can be marketed commercially and is there enough regulation? Are some people, you know, advocating that certain products are gut-friendly when there is no evidence to suggest that? Um, I think the whole legislation is very complex and comes historically from some of the old claims. So for, for years, yogurt has had a, a claim in most countries that uh, it, it is gut friendly uh, without saying how you have to have it or whether, mm. you know, if you smother it with artificial sweeteners and uh, fake jam and, and low fat products, it's still good. Um, and other ones have not allowed to say anything, although, you know, there's quite good data now that uh, high quality cheese is, is good for your, your gut if taken regularly. Um, so I think this whole area is akin to abuse, but no more so than the food supplement industry that claims just by adding a hint of zinc, it's immune boosting, mm -hmm. uh, which was data from, you know, 30, 40 years ago. So, um, yeah, uh, you know, I think we should just move away from labels really and, yeah. and not believe the labels because uh, they only help the big food companies and, and not the, the little ones. Uh, and all our studies are showing that these food labels are just generally misleading and they haven't really helped anybody uh, do anything. So that's that's my belief there. Okay, so thanks for the 411 on uh, the gut microbiome. So let's delve deeper into what we said at the start into the area of personalized nutrition. As I know, um, this is something that is a huge trend at the moment. We're seeing more and more research onto it. So if you could just tell our listeners a little bit about the role of the gut microbiome when it comes to personalized nutrition and how um, you think that uh, this is actually going to be something that we'll be able to use when it comes to um, analysis in healthcare and to help inform different decisions within someone's health. Um, so do tell our audience a bit about their findings from your landmark PREDICT study. So the PREDICT study was uh, published uh, last month in, in Nature Medicine and was probably the largest study of its kind ever done 
uh, involved 1,100 people with the uh, majority of the UK group being twins and 100 people uh, based in Mass General. And basically everyone was given identical meals uh, during a whole day in, in, in clinic uh, with blood measurements taken every uh, half hour or so and a whole range of other tests done. And people can go and see the paper or um, on the Join Zoe uh, website where they can see all the presentation. So uh, I won't go into too much detail, but the key findings were that they, they, they had that so after a day in, in the hospital and two weeks at home with a glucose monitor and taking their own blood tests for triglycerides, etc., logging all their foods, logging their sleep and their exercise patterns, etc. Um, the most striking findings were that everybody really was unique in their response to food. So you give any two people identical set of muffins in, a, in an experimental situation, they will have a different glucose, insulin and triglyceride pattern. Uh, and that was very striking. That was also true in, in identical twins. So although they were more similar than uh, non-identical twins or unrelated, so the similar, you know, it wasn't that big an effect. So there was an eightfold difference between normal people and how they responded to food. So once you think about that, you realise that suddenly all this one-size-fits-all guidelines are out the window. Absolutely. And then, and then you've got to think about, well, why is that? And we broke it down. Um, because we had the twins, we could look at the genetic component and that only account for about 30% of the uh, glucose insulin response at most and it, it was less than 5% for the fat response so again what is it about you know how do we break it down it turns out the main components were um, a combination of things it wasn't one single thing together um, and actually the food on the label was less than 30% of that response mm -hmm. so that's the calories and the macronutrients really didn't account for very much at all and that's supposed to be a hundred percent and other factors were important were uh context specific when you ate it what time of day um the microbiome had a big role that was consistent your fasting levels of your uh your glucose and your lipids also had an effect but it was this multiple multiple factors together so that when you put them in to an algorithm you could actually predict with about 70 percent accuracy how any on basis of that set meal how you would respond to any food sure and that that's what we did so that was a sort of bit of our aha moment we we said that um you know we found people even identical twins where one responded well to glucose they had a very low spike which meant uh, you know they could deal with it pretty well others had a high one the opposite for fats um, and we've gone on recently to, to show that both insulin spikes and uh, triglyceride spikes are associated with inflammation so clearly if you're someone's eating the wrong type of food mm -hmm. you might be healthy you might be within your calorie range but it's just the wrong one for you you're going to have inflammation triggered uh, and end up with chronic inflammation and other people, by luck, might be eating the right food. So the idea is if you combine all this data, you get everybody doing these personalized tests. You can come up with algorithms that people can then score all their foods. And that's basically what was done with this, 
this biotech company called Zoe that uh, I, I, I met three years ago uh, and funded all these, these massive studies. And there are about five of these studies going on now. There's four more that haven't been reported yet. This is just mm-hmm. the tip of the iceberg. But uh, incredibly exciting. Um, and this really is the future of nutrition, I think, that um, mm. realize we're all unique. And then uh, our latest data is showing that the microbiome, when you do metagenomic sequencing rather than the more basic 16S, you can actually detect 15 microbes that are really good for you, 15 that are really bad, and these will help digest the fat better, uh, have a shorter, less inflammatory response, and you know we can start designing diets that will help you increase those good ones and decrease the bad ones. So I'm very optimistic about the next uh, few years. It's very exciting, and and there's actually going to be a product, uh, hopefully in the UK around the end of the year, that uh, will involve microbiome testing, a glucose meter, getting a personal app, and uh, you know s- starting to get the sort of fine grain detail that we we need for all the food choices we make that don't just rely on big fa- you know big foods, food labels. Mm. It really is a eureka moment and such fascinating research. And I, yeah, I'm with you. It's definitely the future. And so just to unpack a little bit about what you said, I remember hearing you speak at a conference and you told a story about how um, you, for instance, using this biotechnology um, um, equipment, have found that orange juice, for instance, gives you a greater glycemic response than regular Coke, which contains far more sugar. And so really highlighting that the same foods can cause a different glycemic response in different individuals and how different foods with, you know, complete different components can also do that um, and go against what you intuitively thought would lead to a greater spike. So could you just elaborate a bit on this and maybe give any other examples um, that you've found in yourself that have completely shocked you or any of your research participants? You know, I spent about a year experimenting myself with glucose monitors and measuring my blood fats and doing all kinds of things. And it, uh, it's really a fascinating insight when you start to get these results that are so personal to you. Mm. And that's different to most studies. And that's why these studies have been so popular, because it's not just the average result. Because we just you throw away the average. You don't care about the average result anymore. Uh, it's all about you. And so... These glucose monitors are revolutionary, really. Um, and, yeah, it showed me that my for 10 years in the hospital, I used to go down to Marks and Spencer's and have their brown um, uh, brown bread, tuna and sweet corn sandwich, you know, some crisps and a, and a mini orange juice, and I think I was being healthy, right, as probably most of the public probably would. And it turned out that gave me, you know, a glucose spike of over 11. Sure. Uh, and so... Uh, that was, you know, and when I, I started to switch my lunch, you know, then, you know, and that, that probably put, I probably put a kilo on every, every year uh, for 10 years just because of that choice of lunch, which was highly glycemic as opposed to something with more fat or, or more fiber in. And I, I worked out that I've been better off probably having a spaghetti bolognese or a curry um, than that because... Uh, that I'm metabolically better even to deal with that. So there are lots of examples like that that um, sure. 
And I compared that to the rest of my family, and they often had very different responses to the identical foods. And so everyone will go through this journey, and I think that you know that is is very exciting. Absolutely. Uh, and yeah. so when it comes to personalised nutrition, and you're talking about this exciting product that's soon to be released, so um, this can actually be commercialised, is personalised nutrition something that only the worried well will be able to access? So is this something you can elaborate on? It's how this can be accessible to the masses and how um, it can be inclusive to those uh, from different cultures as well. Has the data been done um, through a wide range of cross cultures uh, in terms of the participants or um, has it mainly been people who have a westernised diet? Could you, yeah, could you just elaborate on this? Yeah, it's all currently through westernised diets and there's only been a few thousand people that have been done. in the UK and the US, and we don't have it. Uh, we didn't have them so far. We had quite a few Asians in, in in our in our study, and we haven't so far found major differences between ethnicities. Right. But there might be differences in in the baseline diet uh, and the microbiome when you change countries. So I think within a country, we're not seeing much difference, but there might be different cross country differences, and we are. Talking to other groups, uh, there's a group in Singapore that might be starting a similar study uh, and other ones. So we're hoping that other places will start to do this as well. Um, your other question is, well, for anything new, um, it's going to be expensive until it can be done at, at uh, scale. And then once uh, it gets accepted at scale, then the price will come down. And, you know, it's like all these things. If, if the NHS wanted to do metagenome testing on everybody... Um, you could probably do it for 20 quid but at the moment they don't <laughs> and so it's going to remain you know hundreds of pounds to get your uh, microbes fully sequenced but again this will come in time um, we believe that insurance companies will start paying for people to have this because um, it will make people healthier and uh, as life make sensible lifestyle choices and people with pre-diabetes uh, in, in some countries are getting glucose monitors and some nutrition plans based on their own responses. So that is already happening. So, uh, you know, I'm fairly optimistic it will happen, but it's not going to happen uh, this year. Sure, but in good time. And so back to the topic of obesity and one of the kind of great driving forces as to why personalised nutrition um, is on its way and more um apps and equipments and technologies and whatnot in this area um you you mentioned that our prime minister obviously has really taken to trying to deal with this situation on a mass scale having seen the effects of um those with obesity in the covid pandemic having great uh, worse health health outcomes he said he will whether he will or not yeah so I actually recently read an article that said that um, he is getting patients to all go to, patients will start being referred to Weight Watchers more and more. I wanted to kind of get your insights onto whether you think that's somewhat of a good start or if that is just kind of the wrong way to be looking at it. And it comes back to that one size fits all approach with Weight Watchers. Um. Well, I don't want to criticise, you know, any one diet plan more than another. Um, and But it's clear that things like Weight Watchers only seem to work for some people and not for others. And 
they have a you know they have evolved over time and so they're not as rigid as they used to be as far as i understand but you know i think we have to be grateful for small things because sure. just for the nhs to realize that obesity is uh, not a lifestyle choice uh and is a, is a disorder or disease and therefore you know should get the full uh, help from the nhs i think is the main thing here doesn't really matter what they're being referred to at the moment at least that set up that principle and um, and so yeah if if it helps one in ten people that's fantastic but um i, I obviously it's not a cure-all otherwise uh, you know we'd have no obesity problem in this country because everyone weight watchers has been around uh for about 50 years now so sure um it works for a small proportion of people uh, exactly long term mm. need better long term we need better solutions because all diet plans work short term exactly so all diet plans work short term and they mainly stem from a calorie counting point of view so that brings on to discuss the release of your new book spoon fed which um, is coming out in august so could you just tell our audience a bit about um, what that book's going to explore and what your thoughts are currently on the universal recommended calorie intake so yes spoon fed is coming out at the end of august and you can pre-order it now it was supposed to come out in may but got covided <laughs> uh, and uh, basically it's a sort of extension of the diet myth but um focusing more on on food rather than diets and it's delving into uh, about 21 myth, food myths that we've, we're still preoccupied with and I think we've got wrong. And it's assessing the evidence um, for, for them. And it, it, it's everything from uh, environmental type issues about food to um, ones about exercises to cure for uh, obesity uh, with everything in the middle including you know is coffee good for you or um, uh, you know the old thing about butter and margarine that um, uh, keep cropping up in all these guidelines um, about eating low-fat products so it's uh, yeah it, uh, so in there is of course is the, the one that still is a dogma in in the NHS the idea of calorie is the number one thing we need to be looking out for and I, I, I argue that the calorie should be you know abandoned as the flag bearer for nutrition sure. it's it's really a total distraction and the only people that love it are the food industry and probably the diet industry uh, it's impossible to measure properly it's impossible um, to really uh, quantify it in any serious way and it should be right down the list of uh, things to look out for when you're doing food so that sort of comes out as number one and it's still frightening that you know the bbc were pumping out programs about calories uh regularly um you know it, it, i was in a horizon program recently where they were getting people to cycle and row behind a restaurant and it was all about calories in, calories out. And it's just complete nonsense. So, Did you know that that was the concept of the show before you did the recording of talking about the um, 
fat busting bacteria? Uh, no, they, they mm. said it was going to be a discussion about um, uh, calories and different viewpoints, and I uh, I knew they had Susan Jeb on it, uh, uh, who um, has a more traditional approach to these uh, issues, and uh, Charles Yeo was going to talk about genetics, but we, we thought, I, I thought it would be a balanced view about it, and they basically cut bits I was talking about the calorie and just focused on the microbiome which was fine sure uh, but uh, it wasn't at all balanced as you, as you saw uh, and uh, but it's just the idea that that is still mainstream sure. I found really, really upsetting without anyone saying actually this is nonsense and mm. uh, and uh, you know it, it did get a bit of social media interest in that in that story in my comments but um it shows there's still a major fight. Mm. You know, I, I nearly thought we'd moved on from uh, dismissing the calorie because all the people I speak to uh, do realise that you mm. know the calorie is pretty irrelevant and it's not the thing you should look at um, first when you're you're deciding what foods to eat. Mm. But uh, it's still there, sadly. And so, do you rather advocate for the intuitive eating uh, movement approach, which is kind of in opposition to the calorie counting weight management approach? Yeah, I think it's it's understanding what food you're eating, mm -hmm. uh, understanding where it comes from, and giving it some sort of quality score. I think that's really what we should be doing. Uh, you know the many things that have high calorie counts that are, you know, extremely high quality. And um, mm -hmm. if you only go for calories, you'll be having, and you follow these labels that say low calorie because it's like 50 calories less than the other version, um, you're just being conned into eating more and more bad food. And that's what the British public are being conned into. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it really is, it, you know, uh, I get upset that it's, it's still not mm -hmm. recognised. So... I guess a lot of my, you know, my job is to keep uh, annoying people and, yeah. and, and fly the flag. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Nobody, nobody ever comes up with any data to say that uh, I'm wrong or that calorie counting diets have actually ever worked long term. Yeah. That's <laughs> that's promising, then, isn't it? <laughs> and so, moving on to um, our final chapter, uh, quite briefly. Could you just tell our audience a bit about how you pivoted the Zoe technology into the field of COVID-19 research and how you've used the, t the app to actually track people's symptoms over the country um, during this pandemic and what we've learned so far from this app and the experience um, of doing it has taught you? Yeah, so about March the 19th, I just come back from the US just managed to escape in time, and they're about to close my department down at, uh, at King's, and we won't be able to see uh, any, all our twins for our nutrition studies. So I was very depressed and went home, uh, and cycling home, I had this idea, well, why don't we do something on COVID? Uh, let's get some up-to-date data on the twins so we can then link things like their nutrition and their genetics to whether they get this disease or not. And um, we worked out the best way to do this was an app because this is going to happen over time and you won't be able to do a questionnaire or phone people. And so I asked the company Zoe, who we've been working with for the last uh, two and a half years, 
if they were interested in doing a pro bono, you know, quick app to survey uh, the twins, and if it took off, we could do the rest of the population. And they they said yes. The whole team, about thirty of them, worked for four days and got it ready. Wow. Um, and the government is still, as you know, hasn't launched their app. Um, and so it just shows what you can do with a small dynamic um, startup company. Uh, so they had this app ready on March 24th, the day of lockdown, it was ready. We had a million downloads in the, in the first 24 hours. And we had um, three million after uh, a month. Uh, and so we're now at 3.5 million people have downloaded it. It's probably the biggest uh, citizen science project that's ever been in this country. Yeah. And we've done this all without any funding at the moment. And uh, apart from some uh, crowdfunding we've managed to do on the app. But the, uh, the exciting bit was that because the, we, they developed an app for nutrition, the team was all in place. We knew them. We had this great relationship. And so it was really easy just to get it done. But we were all stunned by the success of this app. It was, uh, it was a very major um, uh, excitement. It was, you know, like nothing I've ever had. It's like election day all the time. And, you know, <laughs> we're crashing and, I, you know, doing 10 interviews a day on the media and et cetera. And, and now it looks like, you know, we're moving, we're negotiating with the government about them funding this and, and sure. hopefully working much closer with them. But um, we've got this loyal following now that are giving us, one and a half million people are giving us their symptoms every day. And we're still, as always, challenging authority. That's my modus operandi that NHS still recognised only three symptoms for COVID. We recognised at least 19. Right. Um, uh, you know, and so using the app, we're trying to change people's opinions about uh, the full variety of this virus. Um, and uh, we've got hopes to also link it with genetics, working with Genomics England to get people sequenced who have, for example, the long symptoms, because one in 10 people have symptoms for over a month. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're going to get them sequenced. We're also looking at getting their microbiomes tested to see whether your gut health determines whether you get rid of this virus quickly or it persists and you have long term problems. So. More and more, we're also seeing this link with the gut health coming in. And uh, although we don't need hard data, there's a lot of ang- sure. sort of uh, parallel um, data suggesting how important gut health is because the risk factors are so similar. Obesity, diabetes, uh, poor diets, uh, deprived, deprived people, you know, it, it's all adding up mm-hmm. uh, very nicely to say that the centre of this could be our old friend, the gut microbiome, <laughs> and between diet, you know, and health. The link is the immune system. You know, I think this is going to be huge. I couldn't agree more. And hats off to you that you came up with that on your cycle home, and you turned that frown upside down and into something really incredible. And three and a half million views is just wow. Uh, truly tremendous to have that innovation to pivot the technology for another purpose and yeah the repurposing um so are you able to see from the app whether you can predict a second wave or not and whether you've seen um kind of like social gatherings in more recent months and things lead to spikes of um more instances of covid 
we saw them early on in the in the beginning of April. So we picked these uh, spikes in the South of Wales after the uh, stereophonics and concert and, and rugby matches. Um, we saw Liverpool being uh, highlighted more than Manchester, you know, possibly following the, the football there. And we saw peaks around Cheltenham. Um, it's much harder when the, when the virus levels are very low. Um, sure. And But we are, we've just today uh, got a press release out saying we've identified three new hotspots in the Midlands. Right. Um, so not just Leicester, but also uh, uh, three other areas that are showing uh, double the rates that are actually increasing. And so we think this is the new use of the app. Uh, if, if we can get people to keep logging on, or we can persuade the government to actually back it, then um, you know this would be a fantastic tool to protect us. Not you know the end of the first wave, so we can lock get out of lockdown first, but particularly you know when the second wave hits uh, in the autumn. Mm -hmm. And you feel strongly that that will be the case. There will be a second wave in the autumn. Yes, it just depends how big. Right, I see. Whether, whether we're ready or not. Mm -hmm. <laughs> So finishing up and coming back to the centre of it all, the gut microbiome, could you give our listeners some top tips around what you advocate to keep your gut health in check? I'll do my best. So my first tip, which I think is the one to remember, is to try and eat at least 30 different plants a week. And if you have that in mind, you know, the rest generally follows because we know that a, a plant majority plant-based diet whether you eat meat or not is 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 going to be good for your gut um, and remember that nuts and seeds uh, are also and herbs also count as plants most of what we eat is actually plants it's not as difficult as it sounds second is to have high polyphenol foods as we've discussed um, high fiber foods have regular fermented foods just a small shot every morning of something it doesn't really matter what it is uh, I have a shot of kefir every morning, but uh, also have a bit of kombucha. You don't have, have a lot, but there's no point having it once a month. Uh, it needs to be, uh, you know, several times a week because it, it gets eliminated from your gut. Um, I would also um, advise trying out restricted time eating. So you skip breakfast um, or evening meal, depending whether you're a morning or an evening person. Uh, at least a couple of times a week and see how that feels for you. Um, it certainly works for me. Um, and there's some evidence that this, this biology alters the way you metabolize food uh, and, may help, and may help your gut microbes. Um, avoiding uh, ultra-processed food more than occasionally is really important. Avoiding artificial sweeteners I think is wise thing to do. Um, antibiotic use, limit that. Uh, everyone needs to take it when it's essential, but most people take it when it's not essential. And it's particularly the second course that tends to cause real damage. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and uh, just try and look out for, for real quality food. And um, the evidence isn't there about, you know, necessarily being vegan. Uh, eating less poor quality meat is certainly helpful. Um, 
and the, the key thing is to focus on the positives. Uh, if you do those things right, um, and you reduce the time that you're uh, you're actually eating in the day, yeah, I think, and with less snacking, I don't think there's any such thing as a healthy snack. Try and uh, you know, uh, and psychologically, I think the ideal thing would be to go once once a month on on a something like a five-two fast, where you either fast for 18, 20 hours or 24 hours, um, as a lot of religious groups do anyway, just as psychological training to show yourself. So every, every doctor, I think, should do that um, just so they can talk to their patients about what it feels like and what hunger's like. Once you've done it and you realize you can eat whatever you like the next morning or day, it's not so hard at all. Sure. Um, there are my tips. And when you say 30 plant foods a week, where does that number come from? Because obviously the government advises five fruits and vegetables a day, which if people abide by that and are compliant, that's 35 in a week over 30. So where does where does that number come from? It's 30 different plants a week. The government uh, say five, five of which, you know, only one or two should be juices. So basically people are running a, you know, currently having very small range of yeah. uh, those uh, fruits and vegetables. So the key is not eating uh, a kale salad every every day, three times a day. Um, it's the diversity of what you put in gives you the diversity of your gut microbes. So it's 30 different ones. So I sprinkle nuts and seeds on my yogurt, uh, on my salads, lots of little tricks you can do to just boost things. Try and find something new on a menu you haven't tried before. Uh, you know, there's all kinds of veg out there that we're not eating. Uh, we're very limited in the UK on what people eat. Mm. So just get out of habits. Everyone's in a rut. We've all been there, uh, particularly busy doctors. You know, they just go for the, their usual tuna or cheese or ham sandwich. You know, just try and be a bit different. Sure. So that, yeah, diversify, and that's the key really to good gut health. And finally, I ask all my guests to come on the podcast, what would be, and I know you're going to have the most exciting answer because you're a foodie and you've gone abroad everywhere and tasted loads of different foods. So what would be your ideal last supper? You're given one day left to live. What would be your last starter, main and dessert? Um, <sighs> I've forgotten you were going to ask me this. <laughs> <laughs> you might be hungry now, so. <laughs> um, I definitely think cheese is in there. Well, cheese is definitely going to be in there. <laughs> definitely. Definitely going to have a cheese course. Um, I think um, I would. What would I go for? I, for my last one, I, I'm a big sucker for um, um, uh, vegetable lasagnas with the crispy bits with lots of cheese on top as, um, as my comfort food. So uh, anything that's crunchy and, and, and smells of, of cheese on it, and I, I tend to make my um, lasagnas with, with lentils and mushrooms and every, pretty much everything in it. So I get about 20 vegetables into my, my lasagna and I, you know, the, the top is crispy and crunchy. Um, so that's my, that's my main dish. Uh, I, 
Um, I've got my unpasteurized cheese starter, my very expensive um, uh, red wine. Definitely. Can't forget. And uh, I, my starter, I guess I, I would have... Um, I really like actually um, uh, mussels. I think mussels, particularly this time of year, I get a nice big bowl of of mussels in a in a white wine uh, sauce. Good omega three as well. Yeah, but you know, you're not thinking because you've got one day left to live. It doesn't matter. <laughs> no, it's, it's what yeah, it's the comfort food. But exactly. I actually love I love discovering new things, and uh, you know, I love Japanese food and other and Korean food. So I would probably, you know, uh, if I was given extra ones, I'd probably have a bit of kimchi on the side and um, mm. yeah, my cheese. Would you have anything so, sweet? You've said all savoury, or are you not a sweet? I'm more of a savoury person. Fair enough. So um, I will eat sweet, uh, particularly fruit, but um, I'm much more a, a, a cheese person. I, I like my dark chocolate mm. rather than milk chocolate. Wonderful. And so for our audience to keep up with you and all the exciting work you're doing, whether it's the book that's coming out, the COVID work, or the general gut microbiome work, where can people follow your work? Uh, follow me on Twitter at, at Tim Spector or uh, similar Tim Spector Instagram. Um, and if they want to look at what's going on the COVID stuff, it's the COVID website, which is covid.joinzoe.com. Or if they want to learn or they want to sign up themselves for the waitlist to be one of the first to try the uh, beta product, the Zoe beta product, uh, go to the joinzoe.com website and sign up there. Brilliant. Well, it was an absolute privilege to chat to you today, Professor Spector. Thank you for coming on. Thank you very much. It's been my pleasure too. Nutritank are proud to have featured on many of the UK's leading networks and publications. Jamie Oliver's website and his Channel 4 show, Jamie and Jimmy's Friday Night Feast. BBC News, BBC Radio 4, on Sheila Dillon's The Food Programme, Women's Health, BBC Bristol, and the Royal Society of Medicine. Nutritank is an innovative information hub of food, nutrition, and lifestyle medicine, promoting the need for greater nutrition and lifestyle medicine education within healthcare training and empowering members of the public to improve their health. Join the movement to bring greater nutrition and lifestyle medicine education nationwide. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Remember, if you want to find more about Nutritank, visit the website, Nutritank.com. Also, find us on Twitter, Nutritank underscore info, and Instagram, Nutritank underscore official. If you enjoyed today's podcast, then please subscribe and give us a five-star rating. It will really help with our mission at Nutritank to be the leading hub for food, nutrition and lifestyle medicine. Bye for now.